Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today's guest on The Grill is a bloke who's been part of the beef industry for as long as he can remember. He started life getting chili's boots at his father's beef property. And over the years, he'd worked with all the big ones, Stanbroke, AACO, and many, many, many more. Today, we'll hear some of these adventures and uh, sometimes his misadventures as well. The recently retired Chris Evans. Welcome. You are on The Grill for Beef Central. Thank you, Kerry. Now, Chris, I, I hardly know uh, what to leave out of your career, but let's start as usual at home on your folks' property. Where was that? Uh, Junior Creek is where I grew up, and uh, we had a property between, well, my parents had a property between Julie Creek and Kainena. So you had shit on your boots from day one on? From day one, really, yeah. 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 Started off with sheep and... Uh, had a few cattle, but we ended up with all cattle in the end of the 60s. Yeah, it was um, sheep country out there, almost exclusively, wasn't it? It was initially, Kerry. We were actually next door to the Turak Research Station, which was set up for sheep. Yeah. And um, but I think these days there's very, very few sheep um, in that area. Yeah. Our boarding school church in Brisbane, uh, a lot of uh, uh, bush icons went to church and then went on to – any any you remember from – and your schoolmates in those days? Yeah, I see. We have a uh, get-together um, every year. I, I, I left school in 69. Um, so we, um, twice a year we get together and uh, quite a few friends here and yeah. we keep in contact, yeah. And a lot of, any known bush roosters that we might recognise in the corporate world today? Uh, not not during my period. Bill, Bill Glasson was in my year. Bill was a, uh, as yeah. you know, he was head of the... Uh, uh, Jeep, Doctors Association, whatever yeah, it was, indeed. and uh, a politician. I see Bill from time to time. Now, you go off to the University of New England down in Armadale to do a rural science degree. Um, but before we go to this early part of your career, your family has a very distinguished background. Both sides are descendants from convicts, convicted felons from the UK. <laughs> do you want to tell us that story? Well, it's probably like a lot of early Australians, uh, convicts, and then became free and um, um, and then ended up with properties and on both sides, my mother's side, my father's side, and that's probably where I got, got my yearning and some of them, some of my, uh, some of their ancestors are still uh, in the grazing industry. So we can all read your life story in your upcoming uh, book, Chris, but I get the impression you're quite chuffed, if not proud, of having that convict background. Yeah, yeah. I think um, well, these days forty percent of Australians were born outside this country. So um, uh, to be one of the first, well, descended from the early okay. settlers and convicts. Yeah, I think that's good. You know, and good and your them. grandfather. You before we get to you, your grandfather rode with Breaker Morant. Well, my grandfather. Um, he lived at uh, well, a little town called Come By Chance where he had a property. Yeah. And I always recall he took me uh, riding and he saddled up a horse and uh, he said, boy, see these yards here? Break them around. Uh, he broke in a horse here and uh, he had a pail of water. Uh, it didn't spill a drop. And uh, I said, break them around. I never knew he worked for you. He <laughs> said, no, 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 we're on the next door neighbour's property. All right. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> and come by chance, as also mentioned in your book, when was it your father or grandfather pulled up by the police? And yes, yeah. yes. Well, that's right. Well, both my parents' side and my mother's side uh, came from come by chance, and um, my father's side they 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 were quite wealthy. Um, you know, in the late 1800s, and uh, they had a, a census, actually, and uh, on the property, Bunga Gully they owned, there were 200 people living on the property. But, um, oh, they had a cricket team that used to tour England and a lot of racehorses, and cut a long story short, they, were, they lost all their money. Oh, right, OK. Um, so, but what, what happened when the... Travel, uh, the traffic policeman pulled up your grandfather, was it? Or your My father. father. And he, he pulled him up in Sydney and he said, All right, he said, uh, You're jaywalking, you weren't allowed to jaywalk you know, straight across yeah. the thing. And he said, Where do you come from? He said, Come by chance. He said, Don't give me any cheek, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I assume he got out of that okay. <laughs> he got out of that one. Now, you do an honours rural science degree at UNE. What was your thesis, your honours thesis? Well, I did it on uh, it's animal nutrition and um, all to do with urea feeding and so forth. And uh, there's two of us actually did honours. The other guy, Jim Rowe, he actually became head of the faculty and uh, a professor and quite well known. But um, I, I, I was one of the few that went off to Columbus. 25 of us graduated that year and we had our uh, 50th reunion um, last year. Wow, wow. Now, your very first real job, I know you had some adventures here and that we're going to cut the, to the chase and we're going to come to your interview with a bloke who became, become a household name in Australia. You had an interview with the great Jim or later to be Sir James Balderstone. What happened there? Well, what happened, I, my last year at uni was 73 and as everyone recall that, that was, they were good times in the rural industry. Cattle prices were high and so forth. So I wrote away to all the companies and looking for a job. And, um, and I had a number of interviews, but I had one telegram which said, be at the Zebra Motel, Brisbane, 7am for interview, Balderstone. I didn't have a clue who Balderstone was. <laughs> and um, I didn't know the company, but I thought, oh, I'd better go there and being a poor uni student, I didn't have much money but I had enough to get to Brisbane from Armidale where it was and uh, on a bus and uh, I thought well this is an early start, I better get a room in this hotel. So next day, I, next morning I fronted up and there he was, uh, <coughs> uh, Mr Balderstone, later Sir James and uh, <coughs> he met me and interviewed me and he said uh, alright Joe, when, when can you start? And I said, well, wait a minute, I've got a few other, I've been through this interview process, I've got a few other interviews yet. Oh, he said, we can't mess around. He said, uh, we've got a decision. And I said, well, can you phone me in a couple of days? <clears throat> and he phoned me in a couple of days and he said, what, have you made up your mind? And to get him off my back, I said, uh, oh, yeah, I'll take the job. And I found it later, I was the only applicant for the job. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, the... Um uh, Jim, or later to be Sir James Balderstone, or JBS, you called him, I assume, did you? JSB. JSB, I beg your pardon, yeah. So what was your first job? That was Stanbroke. Stanbroke, yeah. yeah. Well, I had 11 years with Stanbroke. That yeah. was my first job. And, right, uh, yeah. And his um, philosophy is that uh, even though you'd been to uni and done a little bit of work, you had to go out on the properties and work. And uh, So I went to a property called Havilar for three years. and um, But... Um, I actually resigned sometime later. I was the overseer on another property called Waverley to, to go back to a family property. And he said, wait there. 
um, I want to come up and talk to you. And he put a proposition to me. To, yeah. He said, this is what we'll do. He said, you get, get a, a unit in town so we'll pay for it, go around all the properties. Then you come down and work for me. And I said... Oh, that sounds like a pretty good sounds deal. Pretty so good. Right, so okay. I did that and didn't go back to Julia Creek. They were pretty innovative in those times. <laughs> Am I understanding correctly that um, Stanbroke were one of the first to introduce bangtail musters on a large scale? Yeah, I, 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 I thought they were very innovative. Um, you know, accurate cattle counts, bangtails, uh, performance recording, all the cattle, you know, um, weight gains and so forth and... Uh, Working out returns on, on on funds invested for each property, and so it was a good background and a good learning. That's what I later did you know, when I moved to the office. I was mainly uh, reviewing performance or properties or new properties to buy, or we sold a few. Yeah, yeah those bankdown musters they are hard work, but they rewarded you with the branding rates that went through the roof virtually. That's right. That's right, and. Um, I think when they when they first started, branding rates were below fifty percent. They got them up to uh, the mid seventies, and uh, see that they had Sambrack had three vets employed full time. Yeah, and uh, and there's two of us with my qualifications, and so there's a lot of work that went into um, um, how we can improve performance. Like you know, uh, you mentioned bang tails. Mortalities, you know, we were writing off. Uh, Stanbrack had about three fifty thousand cattle. We were writing off about twenty thousand cattle a year. It's a lot of money. Deaths, a lot of money. And so, one of the jobs of the vets is to find out why. You know, what was, why were so many? So each property had to sort of, of the what they wrote off, what they died of. You know, yeah. they might be bogging old age or whatever, and uh, we're able to reduce those mortalities over a period of time too. Chris, uh, 74 uh, and onwards, and you had not long started work, and then the great <coughs> cattle price crash. Do you remember that? Remember it well. Um, as I said before, 73 was a good year. I started with Stanbroke in uh, February 74 the following year. Pretty good. Uh, we were buying cattle stores to fatten, but the market started falling. And... Um, JSB said, right, no more buying. We don't buy in a falling market and we're going to cut costs. So where I worked in Havila, we reduced our staffing by 50%. Jeez. And that was pretty well across. And a lot of those people left the industry, not only where I worked but elsewhere, and uh, went into the mining industry and so forth. Never, never, never came back to the bush. And I, I don't think yeah, – but there's a fundamental change. We learnt that, um, you know, you didn't need – that number of people to run a property because we, we used to walk Bullocks into uh, Collinsville and uh, initially the whole stock camp at Walker meant eight people but we ended up with just four people with a couple of coaches walking them in at the end of the day and still did the job no trouble. What number of, uh, in, your, in the Stanbroke herd did it drop to? JSP had a great philosophy. He said uh, we keep on going with the improvements on the properties uh, that's you know, herd improvements. We keep selling what we normally sell. So we made a loss only one year. And there was actually quite a few people were critical of us when we made the profit, of, you know, in 70. 74 we made a loss, 75 I think it was as small as 76 we made a profit. And there were talks about, um, well, we must have favoured treatment and so forth, you know, with prices. It wasn't the case. It was just the fact that, 
you know, we got into a lot of aged cows to sell and so forth. And um, so when we came out of the... Uh, well, ca- it just went, what, what, what were bullocks selling for in those days? What, about $20. Wow. $20 a head. And um, if you sold cold cows, you've got to be watch them, otherwise you might get a bill back at the end of the day. <laughs> because the freight is more than what they were worth. Exactly. Wow. It was a pretty tough time. And... Um, and I, I, I remember where I, I worked, um, you know, I, I was obviously concerned about my job. And um, so the company put off the other guy who was employed the same time as me. But I always remember um, just not long after I arrived, I already received a letter from JSB. He said, uh, you're going to be paid more than anyone else, $6,000 a year. So we don't want you to reveal to anyone how much you're being paid. So as soon as I arrived... There's a vet there, and he jumped out. And he says, "How much are being paid?" <laughs> well, I didn't say anything. He said, "Well, I think we should both write to the head office and ask for more money." Yeah, I had no intention of doing so. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, we both got letters. He got a letter, I got a letter, and my letter said, uh, "We're well, pleased to hear you settled in. We've decided to increase the salary." <laughs> and, he, and this other fellow said, "The vet fellow said, oh, they knocked you back too, did they?'" <laughs> and some time later, JSB came and visited and he said, uh, what do you think of the pay increase? I said, I didn't ask for it. He said, those who don't ask get it. Oh, it's amazing, isn't he? Remarkable <laughs> character. He went on to become chairman of um, BHP. And That's correct, BHP. Quantus yeah. as well. Uh, AMP. Yeah. yeah, remarkable man. Time for a break. I'm uh, speaking with the recently retired Chris Evans. We'll be back in a moment. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your wieners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinocard. Available from your local vet today. For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. Back on the grill with Beef Central, I'm here with Chris Evans. Now, about the same time, maybe a little after, Australia, I don't know whether Stanbroke were the first, but certainly one of the first to look at it on a large scale, they started to introduce these uh, weird cattle, Brahmins. What did you think of them when you first saw a Brahmin? Well, Stanbroke were great um believers in the Brahmin breed. Mm. So they introduced the Brahmin across all the Gulf properties and they also bought a Brahmin stud called Waverley, which is one of the foundation Brahmin yeah. herds in Australia and that's where I worked for a while. But all these properties in the in in the Gulf had uh, multiplier herds, Brahmin multiplier herds. And one of the initial jobs I did at, um, well research jobs I did at Havilah was look at um, the performance of the Brahmin cross bullocks versus the Hereford bullocks, which came off, were bred on Abington Downs. And the Brahmin cross were a year, 
weight heavier and were a year younger. Yeah. There if it's in, and 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 interestingly, uh, Stanbrack had an interest in a, in a in a Kimberley group called Northern Cattle Company, and Northern Cattle Company would not introduce the Brahmin. They said you'll never control them up here, and uh, as a result of that, Stanbrack actually sold out of Northern Cattle Company. Uh-huh. And the Brahmins, of course, have taken over the North, haven't they? Well, it's you know, as everyone knows, I mean, Brahmins. Polythene and Buffalo made, exactly. made, yeah. made the cattle you, industry. And you look at it now, you look at the North, and you, you cannot believe that the British breeds dominated there for so long. That's right. And there was some, uh, when I worked at Havilar, because um, we had Brahmins, we had some Sanders and Brahmins, but there was a price old Ted Cunningham near us at Devons, and he was a died in the wool Devon. Devon, Devons were there, yes. Devons, and yeah. they would die like flies at the. Uh, late in the year, but he he was convinced that the Devons were the way to go. They still show a few Devons at the at the Brisbane Ecker. Do they? Yeah. All oh, right. But the Brahmins are dominant, of course. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And when dark Brahmins were first introduced, I'm told at the Ecker, they were looked so weird because they had that clear skin or clean skin, big ears and a big lump on the back. They were put among the zoo animals. That's exactly right. They said these uh, these animals should be in the zoo, you know, they're not cattle. <laughs> but look now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Now I want to get through as much as possible, some quick fire dot points. Stanbroke, big company, lots of cattle. They did a lot of land clearing up there. What Was that effective, do you think, 100% in its day? Well, you look back. And now, I mean, when when we were we were clearing uh, Gigi and later Brigalow scrub, yeah. and that country would carry virtually nothing, and we were turning it into uh, into pasture fattening country with buffalo grass, yeah, running you know in acre terms, you know, one to five acres, and it was very the return on that was very very high. So in my time, I think we we cleared in acres two hundred thousand acres. But looking back now, we're probably over-enthusiastic with a lot of our clearing because we cleared right across watercourses and so forth and yeah. probably these days you'd be a bit more conservation-minded. But uh, it was a great thing for Stanbrook. I mean, it really put the, well, the Central Highlands properties on the map and, uh, you know, though it was a good collection of properties. And it might have been common in those days, but you Stanbrook had a lot of horses on their properties, a lot. 3,400, I think, from what I read. Yes, you're right, Kerry. Uh, horses played a big part in Stanbroke in those days. I mean, all the work on the properties was all horse work. Yeah. And so each property had a, a brood mares and stallion and, you know, it's not uncommon for each property to have 200 horses and um, horse books were religiously kept. Even, you know, when I was there, we had to file a horse return um, every Every month, back to head office, how many horses we had, you know, how many we might have uh, branded and so forth or foaled. Um, and during the First World War, I mean, some of those properties supplied a lot of horses for the light horse. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, what happened was, you know, after I left, they actually consolidated a lot of these broodmares uh, on different properties into one, one property as a central breeding had bought better quality stallions, yeah. um, which probably probably was a way to go because, um, you know, very much a personal preference would come in. You know, some people like the uh, the clumper-type horses down the Channel Country, you know, so used for broncoing, and uh, others like the polo cross-type horses and, you know, 
So no, when did right. when did the um, the motorbike become popular? Well, not in my time. And so I, I left Stanbrook in eighty five. So um, I remember one of our managers wanted to get motorbikes, and um, and the company poo pooed the idea. Yeah. But I suppose you know later on in life we had a I'd known property out in the Channel Country and um, at Aquilpe. We did all our mustering on motorbikes. Mm. Uh, then, so I think the change probably came about in the nineties, and economics probably were the reason behind and it. And better you know. motorbikes as well. And better motorbikes, yeah. 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 How many cattle did Stanbrook get up to when you were there? Three hundred and sixty-five thousand. Yeah. And you went through the BTEC campaign as well. That must have been an experience. Yeah, that that well, that was probably our major um, herd improvement program. We. Um, that three vets were employed doing the BT uh, TB testing most of the time. Yeah. And places like Rocklands, for example, um, near Camelwill, when we first started testing, ten percent of incidents of TB. Yeah, and uh, Bob Chester, who's a senior vet, he had a lot to do with that, and later on John Armstrong. And but eventually they cleaned it up. You yeah. know, uh, it was a mixture of testing, putting clean cattle behind. Why new you know improvements and 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 BTEC bought a lot of improvements, no doubt about it, with yards and fencing and so forth. It's a, it's a remarkable success story, isn't it? But it is a lot of money, a lot of hard work. And it is, and yeah. it really it really transformed the northern cattle industry. Yeah, yeah. You know, from a sort of a harvest situation to a more controlled herd situation, because you had to have a controlled herd. You were you went uh, here, there, and everywhere. You st- as I say, major part of your career. Two companies, uh, one being Stanbroke. What was Stanbroke like when you when you left it? It was still a flourishing company, wasn't it? Was this before it was sold? Yeah, I I, I don't know much about it afterwards, but yeah. um, certainly when I was there, it was during the growth phase. We're still buying properties, yeah. and the one thing that really stuck with me just the people, just how how good the people were. That you know, it was like one big family, very experienced people, um, you know, capably led. Because after, after uh, JSB retired, Bill Norton became the managing director, but JSB stayed there as the chairman yeah. of the company. And um, it, it was a great period, you know, up to 85. I don't know much about what's happened after that. But you were keep, would you keep a close eye on it, wouldn't you? Well, I used to do the valuations. Yeah. First, first stand broke, and uh, so I saw some of the new properties were acquired. But uh, it's leading up to the obvious question, <laughs> and that is, when they sold out, when AMP sold out, did they get good value? Do you think? Uh, well, probably not. Probably uh-huh. not because I knew Peter Managazzo very well, yeah. and uh, I think Peter was a visionary, lovely man, and he was always had the view that um, you know the properties were worth more than. What a lot of people thought, and uh, and he was interested not so much in the cattle, but in the land. He could see the potential in the land. Yeah, but probably in retrospect, no, A and P didn't get real value for it. So they tra- they sold it as, as 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 a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The story yet to be told, I suspect. Um, yeah. Other parts of your career, you worked um, closely with the indigenous communities at one stage. What, what was that? What were you doing there? I did, and uh, after I uh, left Stanbroke uh, in '85, I became a partner in uh, a valuation firm called Taylor Byrne. Yeah, and uh, we set up an agribusiness division that was part of the 
part of my um, brief when I joined them. Um, so we moved into management. The very first management I had to look at was Aboriginal properties. I thought they were the easy target, so it was the Stanbroke principles I adopted. So uh, we ended up managing uh, two of the properties, Am and Bidgee, which is an old Durack property, Kildirk, and another one on the Douglas Valley called Palumpa. We had a look at um, Dagaragu, which was taken off Wave Hill. Very difficult. We suggested they should lease it, which they did do. And the, it was a very interesting period. Amit Bidji, the, the Australian, actually wrote a quite a, a lengthy piece about what we'd done there. Because when we took it over, the management, the TB was rife. Uh, they owed a lot of money. Um, so over the three years of our term, we got the TB back on track we in those days you um we, we we destocked all the outside countries to be infected and brought brought inside behind the wire they called it um clean cattle yeah so we left it with um yeah money in the bank tb testing uh the store they had with a lot of money and then it was handed back to the community to run and within 12 months it was back to where it was so mm. a bit sad really i think it wasn't our originals it was it was the white people I believe, who were uh, at fault there. Yeah, it's a big story up there, isn't it? That It is. Yeah. And it's been repeated time and time again, yes, Gary. You also spent time in Indonesia. Uh, what was the experience like there? Because that was largely with the live trade, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we um, we were doing consulting work then for the Australian Meat and Livestock Corporation and other private people, but we moved into uh, live cattle exporting to the Philippines was the major, major market then, but uh, Indonesia was growing, and so we were doing two shipments a month to the Philippines. We ultimately did two shipments a month to uh, uh, to Indonesia as well. Yet one stage there you did a, a world tour and you ended up in a kibbutz in Israel. Well, that's an interesting one. <coughs> and you went off track once when you were coming back and you were shot at once. <laughs> Well, um, well, this is going. But if we go back to Stanbrook, I had yeah. three, three years yeah, cattle yeah. recession on yeah. Havilah. Yeah. It was pretty tough. Yeah. And um, so I applied for a leave of absence. And the JSB flew up and again, and he said, Well, this is what we'll do for you. You know, um, you'll have your leave of absence. You come back and work. Um, we want you to go to America. So we'll give you the money to go and have a look at America. Very handy. Thank you very much. Yes. And um, so I had nine months of just freelance. We ended up, I wanted to work in Israel because, um, you know, I was interested then in dryland agriculture and so forth. And uh, so I got a job in a kibbutz. Yeah. And uh, and that's where I had the interesting, yes, I was coming back from Jericho taking a shortcut, as bush people do, and but I happened to walk into a rifle range. <laughs> and I, spent, I didn't know it was a rifle range. I thought it was being shot at. Well, yeah. <laughs> well maybe you were lucky they weren't. Yeah. So what did you learn there? Well, what I did learn was that I went down to the Sinai as well and had a look at that. And I was shown around uh, by some of the Israelis what they could do in a very with a very dry land, and then so the they gave. Were, they were in the in the in, in the desert. Yeah, in the gave. Yeah, it's they gave desert. Yeah, and they were growing like on one acre, uh, one date palm, and they collect the water. Yep, all of that into there, and but where I work, we had we had uh, cotton and wheat and, and so forth, and um, it just just shows you what you can do with land with very little. Yeah. And you came back and you, as you've mentioned before, you started, um, became a, 
Managing director of Taylor Byrne, is that right? Well, I when I came back, I went to Waverley and then yeah. managed a property called Isle of Plains and then worked in the head office. But um, in in eighty five, after eleven years with Stanbroke, I, I was offered a uh, uh, shareholding in Taylor Byrne, and then I became managing director there the following year. I was eighteen years managing director of Taylor Byrne and and a shareholder, and we had just one office in Brisbane, but by the time I left, we had five offices and a pretty vibrant agribusiness yeah. thing. And, and, and when we... I, I actually bought out the agri, agribusiness part at the end, and um, that's where I, I took it and um, sold 51% of it to the AA company, Australian Agricultural Company. So you look back now and you're into retirement. What do you think of this current situation of the Australian beef industry? I'm very, uh, you know, very optimistic about it. Um, I think we've come a long way. I was asked the que- I was on the on the uh, beef research committee for Western Queensland. I remember going to a property, and this bloke who owned the property, he had done everything. His cattle, I mean, you couldn't fault his cattle management. And he asked me the question, "What do I do now?" And my answer was, I said, "Look after the resource you got, the land resource." That's where I think our future is. I think we, we've got to think more about the land and it's got to be there for generations and generations. And, yeah, I'm not a greedy, but um, probably, um, you know, the prudent use of land. And some of it's been quite degraded and we should rehabilitate it and so forth and hand it on to future generations. What are the memories you cherish most when you look back on your uh, rich and extensive career? Kerry, I think it's the, uh, probably the people I've met. You know, yeah. I've been fortunate enough to, uh, yeah, meet leaders in the industry uh, right down to the lowest of the low. And uh, and I found all of them, everyone has a story to tell and have a genuine interest in the land. They all have. And and there were some really nice people. I mean, I, 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 Peter Sherwin's one. Now, Peter Sherwin was an enigma to a lot of people. Indeed. And a lot of people said, oh, this Peter Sherwin, yeah, you, you don't want to talk to him because he's that and everything else. I spent two weeks with him. And the first week, he's a bit like that, he's a bit standoffish. But I learnt that it takes a lot for him to trust people. And he used to be a Golden Gloves champion. Boxing. So I said to him one day, I said, Peter, what do you think of this boxing these days? And he just opened up. He couldn't st- shut up there. And he and I became quite friendly at the end. And once he got, you know, he's a person, once he got to trust you, the people were not there to, you know, to, to have a go at him or anything like that. He was the other one. And numerous people have told me similar stories about him. Yeah, quite an enigma and uh, quite a name though still. Mm. Still mentioned in dispatches in the territory when you talk of certain properties and certain incidents in the in the territory. Uh, anything else that stands out? You you mentioned in your book, and the book is called The Pastoral Choice. That'll be out hopefully this year sometime. Maybe depends. Well, depends whether the person who's actually editing it <laughs> does I'll, a bit of work. I'll, I'll, I'll give him a reminder. No, okay. <laughs> now, one character I know you mentioned there—he's got the nickname of the Python. Tell us about the guy called the Python. Well, Python, Python was on Havilah, 
And he's one of those blokes who, ex-ringer, progressed from that. In the, he got a bit older and he could... He was a magician with machinery. drove the grader, grade the, drove the dozer. And uh, he used to always joke that he'd gone to high school at Mount Coolin. And the, he said, that's the one with the high, with the high, the high stumps. That's where I went, I went to school. But anyway, he had this amazing way of, of, of actually uh, giving himself a haircut. He had dosed it in kerosene. And then he he would light it and dab it out with a wet rag and then comb out all the burnt bits and then a mirror and I had a look at it and if it needed a little more burning on one one side he would but the, he never he never had to go to a professional hair <laughs> but interesting Python had a son and we called him the lizard right. and the lizard had a son yeah. and we called him the gecko. <laughs> it's a funny old place. Chris, your book, uh, Pastoral Choice, as I mentioned, late, uh, out uh, later this year, maybe. Genuine pleasure. Thank you for being on the Grill for Beef Central. Thanks, Kerry. And thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan. This has been the Weekly Grill, brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis.